Section 4 of Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 2 by John Calvin. Translated by Henry Beveridge. Chapter 2, Part 2, Number 8. As to the fathers, if their authority weighs with us, they have the term constantly in their mouths but they at the same time declared what extent of meaning they attached to it in particular augustine hesitates not to call the will a slave in another passage he is offended with those who deny free will but his chief reason for this is to explain when he says only lest any one should presume so to deny freedom of will from a desire to excuse sin it is certain he elsewhere admits that without the spirit the will of man is not free insomuch as it is subject to lusts which chain and master it and again that nature began to want liberty the moment the will was vanquished by the revolt into which it fell again that man by making a bad use of free will lost both himself and his will again that free will having been made a captive can do nothing in the way of righteousness again that no will is free which has not been made so by divine grace again that the righteousness of god is not fulfilled when the law orders and man acts as it were by his own strength but when the spirit assists and the will not the free will of man but the will freed by god obeys he briefly states the ground of all these observations when he says that man at his creation received a great degree of free will but lost it by sinning in another place after showing that free will is established by grace he strongly inveighs against those who arrogate anything to themselves without grace his words are how much soever miserable men presume to plume themselves on free will before they are made free or on their strength after they are made free they do not consider that in the very expression free will liberty is implied where the spirit of the lord is there is liberty second corinthians three seventeen if therefore they are the servants of sin why do they boast of free will he who has been vanquished is the servant of him who vanquished him but if men have been made free why do they boast of it as of their own work are they so free that they are unwilling to be the servants of him who has said without me ye can do nothing john fifteen five in another passage he even seems to ridicule the word when he says that the will is indeed free but not freed free of righteousness but enslaved to sin the same idea he elsewhere repeats and explains when he says that man is not free from righteousness save by choice of his will and is not made free from sin save by the grace of the saviour declaring that the freedom of man is nothing else than the emancipation or manumission from righteousness he seems to jest at the emptiness of the name if any one then chooses to make use of this terms without attaching any bad meaning to it he shall not be troubled by me on that account but as it cannot be retained without very great danger i think the abolition of it would be of great advantage to the church i am unwilling to use it myself and others if they will take my advice will do well to abstain from it nine it may perhaps 
seem that I have greatly prejudiced my own view by confessing that all the ecclesiastical writers, with the exception of Augustine, have spoken so ambiguously or inconsistently on this subject that no certainty is attainable from their writings. Some will interpret this to mean that I wish to deprive them of their right of suffrage because they are opposed to me. Truly, however, I have no other end in view than to consult simply and in good faith for the advantage of pious minds which if they trust to those writers for their opinion will always fluctuate in uncertainty at one time they teach that man having been deprived of the power of free will must flee to grace alone at another they equip or seem to equip him in armor of his own it is not difficult however to show that notwithstanding of the ambiguous manner in which those writers express themselves they hold human virtue in little or no account and ascribe the whole merit of all that is good to the Holy Spirit. To make this more manifest, I may here quote some passages from them. What then is meant by Cyprian in the passage so often lauded by Augustine? Let us glory in nothing, because nothing is ours, unless it be that man, being utterly destitute, considered in himself, should entirely depend on God. What is meant by Augustine and Eucherius? when they expound that Christ is the tree of life, and that whoso puts forth this hand to it shall live, that the choice of the will is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that he who forsaking the grace of God tastes of it shall die. What is meant by Christostom when he says that every man is not only naturally a sinner, but holy sin? There is nothing good in us. If man from the crown of the head to the sole of the foot is holy sin, if it is not even lawful to try how far the power of the will extends, how can it be lawful to share the merit of a good work between God and man? I might quote many passages to the same effect from other writers, but lest any cavalier should say that I select those only which serve my purpose, and cunningly pass by those which are against me, I desist. This much, however, I dare affirm that though they sometimes go too far in extolling free will, the main object which they had in view was to teach man entirely to renounce all self-confidence and place his strength in God alone. I now proceed to a simple exposition of the truth in regard to the nature of man. 10. Here, however, I must again repeat what I premised at the outset of this chapter that he who is most deeply abased and alarmed by the consciousness of his disgrace, nakedness, want, and misery, has made the greatest progress in the knowledge of himself. Man is in no danger of taking too much from himself, provided he learns that whatever he wants is to be recovered in God, but he cannot arrogate to himself one particle beyond his due without losing himself in vain confidence and by transferring divine honor to himself becoming guilty of the greatest impiety and assuredly whatever our minds are seized with a longing to possess a somewhat of our own which may reside in us rather than in god we may rest assured that the thought is suggested by no other counsellor than he who enticed our first parents to aspire to be like gods knowing good and evil. It is sweet, however, to have so much virtue of our own as to be able to rest in ourselves. But let the many solemn passages 
by which our pride is sternly humbled deter us from indulging this vain confidence cursed be the man that trusteth in man and maketh flesh his arm jeremiah seventeen five he delighteth not in the strength of the horse he taketh not pleasure in the legs of a man the lord taketh pleasure in those that fear him in those that hope in his mercy psalm one forty seven ten and eleven he giveth power to the faint and to them that have no might he increaseth strength even the youth shall faint and be weary and the young man shall utterly fall but they that wait upon the lord shall renew their strength isaiah forty twenty nine through thirty one the scope of all these passages is what we must not entertain any opinion whatever of our own strength if we would enjoy the favor of god who resisteth the proud but giveth grace unto the humble james four six then let us call to mind such promises as these i will pour water upon them that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground isaiah forty four three ho every one that thirsteth come ye to the waters isaiah fifty five one these passages declare that none are admitted to enjoy the blessings of god save those who are pining under a sense of their own poverty nor ought such passages as the following be omitted the sun shall no more be thy light by day neither for brightness shall the moon give light unto thee but the lord shall be unto thee an everlasting light and thy god thy glory isaiah sixty nineteen the lord certainly does not deprive his servants of the light of the sun or moon but as he would alone appear glorious in them he dissuades them from confidence even in those objects which they deem most excellent eleven i have always been exceedingly delighted with the words of chrysostom the foundation of our philosophy is humility and still more with those of augustine as the orator when asked what is the first precept of eloquence answered delivery what is the second delivery what the third delivery so if you ask me in regard to the precepts of the christian religion i will answer first second and third humility by humility he means not when a man with the consciousness of some virtue refrains from pride but when he truly feels that he has no refuge but in humility this is clear from another passage let no man says he flatter himself of himself he is a devil his happiness he owes entirely to god what have you of your own but sin take your sin which is your own for righteousness is of god again why presume so much on the capability of nature it is wounded maimed vexed lost the thing wanted is genuine confession not false deference when any one knows that he is nothing in himself and he has no help from himself the weapons within himself are broken and the war is ended all the weapons of impiety must be bruised and broken and burnt in the fire you must remain unarmed having no help in yourself the more infirm you are the more the lord will sustain you so in expounding the seventeenth psalm he forbids us to remember our own righteousness in order that we may recognize the righteousness of god and shows that god bestows his grace upon us that we may know that we are nothing that we stand only by the mercy of god seeing that in ourselves we are altogether wicked let us not contend with god for our right 
as if anything attributed to him were lost to our salvation. As our insignificance is his exaltation, so the confession of our insignificance has its remedy provided in his mercy. I do not ask, however, that man should voluntarily yield without being convicted, or that if he has any powers he should shut his eyes to them, that he may thus be subdued to true humility. But that, getting quit of the disease of self-love and ambition, under the blinding of which he thinks of himself more highly than he ought to think, he may see himself as he really is by looking into the faithful mirror of Scripture. 12. I feel pleased with the well-known saying, which has been borrowed from the writing of Augustine, that man's natural gifts were corrupted by sin, and his supernatural gifts withdrawn, meaning by supernatural gifts the light of faith and righteousness, which would have been sufficient for the attainment of heavenly life and everlasting felicity. Man, when he withdrew his allegiance to God, was deprived of the spiritual gifts by which he has been raised to the hope of eternal salvation. Hence it follows that he is now in exile from the kingdom of God, so that all things which pertain to the blessed life of the soul are extinguished in him until he recovered them by the grace of regeneration. Among these are faith, love to God, charity towards our neighbor, the study of righteousness and holiness. All these, when restored to us by Christ, are to be regarded as adventitious and above nature. If so, we infer that they were previously abolished. On the other hand, soundness of mind and integrity of heart were at the same time withdrawn, and it is this which constitutes the corruption of natural gifts. For although there is still some residue of intelligence and judgment, as well as will, we cannot call a sound mind and entire, which is both weak and immersed in darkness. As to the will, its depravity is but too well known. Therefore, since reason by which man discerns between good and evil, and by which he understands and judges is a natural gift, it could not be entirely destroyed, but being partly weakened and partly corrupted, a shapeless ruin is all that remains. In this sense, it is said in John 1, 5, that light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. These words, clearly expressing both points, viz., that in the perverted and degenerate nature of man, there are still some sparks which show that he is a rational animal, and differs from the brutes, insomuch as he is endued with intelligence. And yet this light is so smothered by clouds of darkness that it cannot shine forth to any good effect. In like manner, the will, because inseparable from the nature of man, did not perish, but was so enslaved by depraved lust as to be incapable of one righteous desire. The definition now given is complete, but there are several points which require to be explained. Therefore, proceeding agreeably to that primary distinction by which we divide the soul into intellect and will, we will now inquire into the power of the intellect. To charge the intellect with perpetual blindness, so as to leave it no intelligence of any description whatever, is repugnant not only to the word of God, but to common experience. We see that there have been implanted in the human mind a certain desire of investigating truth, to which it never would aspire unless some relish for truth antecedently existed. 
there is therefore now in the human mind discernment to this extent that it is naturally influenced by the love of truth the neglect of which in the lower animals is a proof of their gross and irrational nature still it is true that this love of truth fails before it reaches the goal forthwith falling away into vanity as the human mind is unable from dullness to pursue the right path of investigation and after various wanderings stumbling every now and then like one groping in darkness at length gets completely bewildered so its whole procedure proves how unfit it is to search the truth and find it then it labors under another grievous defect in that it frequently fails to discern what the knowledge is which it should study to acquire hence under the influence of a vain curiosity it torments itself with superfluous and useless discussions either not adverting at all to the things necessary to be known or casting only a cursory and contemptuous glance at them at all events it scarcely ever studies them in sober earnest profane writers are constantly complaining of this perverse procedure and yet almost all of them are found pursuing it hence solomon throughout the book of ecclesiastes after enumerating all the studies in which men think they attain the highest wisdom pronounces them vain and frivolous thirteen still however man's efforts are not always so utterly fruitless as not to lead to some result especially when his attention is directed to inferior objects nay even with regard to superior objects though he is more careless in investigating them he makes some little progress here however his ability is more limited and he is never made more sensible of his weakness than when he attempts to soar above the sphere of the present life it may therefore be proper in order to make it more manifest how far our ability extends in regard to these two classes of objects to draw a distinction between them the distinction is that we have one kind of intelligence of earthly things and another of heavenly things by earthly things i mean those which relate not to god and his kingdom to true righteousness and future blessedness but have some connection with the present life and are in a manner confined within its boundaries by heavenly things i mean the pure knowledge of god the method of true righteousness and the mysteries of the heavenly kingdom to the former belong the matters of policy and economy all mechanical arts and liberal studies to the latter as to which see the eighteenth and following sections belong the knowledge of god and of his will and the means of framing the life in accordance with them as to the former the view to be taken in this since man is by nature a social animal he is disposed from natural instinct to cherish and preserve society and accordingly we see that the minds of all men have impressions of civil order and honesty hence it is that every individual understands how human societies must he regulated by laws and also is able to comprehend the principles of those laws hence the universal agreement in regard to such subjects both among nations and individuals the seeds of them being implanted in the breasts of all without a teacher or lawgiver the truth of this fact is not affected by the wars and dissensions which immediately arise while some as thieves and robbers would invert the rules of justice 
loosen the bonds of law and give free scope to their lusts. And while others, a vice of most frequent occurrence, deem that to be unjust which is elsewhere regarded as just, and on the contrary hold that the praiseworthy which is elsewhere forbidden, for such persons do not hate the laws from not knowing that they are good and sacred, but inflamed with headlong passion, quarrel with what is clearly reasonable, and licentiously hate what their mind and understanding approve. Quarrels of this latter kind do not destroy the primary idea of justice, for while men dispute with each other as to particular enactments, their ideas of equity agree in substance. This no doubt proves the weakness of the human mind, which even when it seems on the right path, halts and hesitates. Still, however, it is true that some principle of civil order is impressed on all, and this is ample proof that in regard to the constitution of the present life, no man is devoid of the light of reason. 14. Next come manual and liberal arts, in learning which, as all have some degree of aptitude, the full force of human acuteness is displayed. But though all are not equally able to learn all the arts, we have sufficient evidence of a common capacity in the fact that there is scarcely an individual who does not display intelligence in some particular art, and this capacity extends not merely to the learning of the art, but to the devising of something new, or the improving of what we have previously learned. This led Plato to adopt the erroneous idea that such knowledge was nothing but recollection. So cogently does it oblige us to acknowledge that its principle is naturally implanted in the human mind. But while these proofs openly attest the fact of a universal reason and intelligence naturally implanted, this universality is of a kind which should lead every individual for himself to recognize it as a special gift of God. To this gratitude we have a sufficient call from the Creator Himself when, in the case of idiots, He shows what the endowments of the soul would be were it not pervaded with His light. Though natural to all, it is so in such a sense that it ought to be regarded as a gratuitous gift of his beneficence to each. Moreover, the invention, the methodical arrangement, and the more thorough and superior knowledge of the arts, being confined to a few individuals, cannot be regarded as a solid proof of common shrewdness. Still, however, as they are bestowed indiscriminately on the good and the bad, they are justly classified among the natural endowments. 15. Therefore, in reading profane authors, the admirable light of truth displayed in them should remind us that the human mind, however much fallen and perverted from the original integrity, is still adorned and invested with admirable gifts from its Creator. If we reflect that the Spirit of God is the only fountain of truth, we will be careful as it would avoid offering insult to Him not to reject or condemn truth wherever it appears. In despising the gifts, we insult the giver. How then can we deny that truth must have been beamed on those ancient lawgivers who arranged civil order and discipline with so much equity? Shall we say that the philosophers in their exquisite researches and skillful description of nature were blind? Shall we deny the possession of intellect to those who drew up the rules for discourse and taught us to speak in accordance with reason. Shall we say that those who, by the cultivation of the medical art, 
expended their industry in our behalf were only raving what shall we say of the mathematical sciences shall we deem them to be the dreams of madmen nay we cannot read the writings of the ancients on these subjects without the highest admiration an admiration which their excellence will not allow us to withhold but shall we deem anything to be noble and praiseworthy without tracing it to the hand of god far from us to be such ingratitude an ingratitude not chargeable even on heathen poets who acknowledge that philosophy and laws and all useful arts are the invention of the gods therefore since it is manifest that men whom the scripture term carnal are so acute and clear-sighted in the investigation of inferior things their example should teach us how many gifts the lord has left in possession of human nature notwithstanding of its having been despoiled of the true good sixteen moreover let us not forget that there are most excellent blessings which the divine spirit dispenses to whom he will for the common benefit of mankind for if the skill and knowledge required for the construction of the tabernacle behaved to be imparted to baziel and aholaab by the spirit of god exodus thirty one two and thirty five thirty it is not strange that the knowledge of those things which are of the highest excellence in human life is said to be communicated to us by the spirit nor is there any ground for asking what concourse the spirit can have with the ungodly who are altogether alienated from god for what is said as to the spirit dwelling in believers only is to be understood of the spirit of holiness by which we are consecrated to god as temples notwithstanding of this he fills moves and invigorates all things by the virtue of the spirit and that according to the particular nature which each class of beings has received by the law of creation but if the lord has been pleased to assist us by the work and ministry of the ungodly in physics dialects mathematics and other similar sciences let us avail ourselves of it lest by neglecting the gifts of god spontaneously offered to us we be justly punished for our sloth lest any one however should imagine a man to be very happy merely because with reference to the elements of this world he had been endued with the great talents for the investigation of truth we ought to add that the whole power of intellect thus bestowed is in the sight of god leading in vain whenever it is not based on a solid foundation of truth augustine to whom it has been observed the master of sentences and the schoolmen are forced to subscribe says most correctly that as the gratuitous gifts bestowed on man were withdrawn so the natural gifts which remain were corrupted after the fall not that they can be polluted in themselves in so far as they proceed from god but that they have ceased to be pure to polluted man lest he should by their means obtain any praise seventeen the sum of the whole is this from a general survey of the human race it appears that one of the essential properties of our nature is reason which distinguishes us from the lower animals just as these by means of sense are distinguished from inanimate objects for although some individuals are born without reason that defect does not impair the general kindness of god but rather serves to remind us that whatever we retain ought justly to be ascribed to the divine indulgence had god not so spared us our revolt would have carried along with it the entire destruction of nature in that some excel in acuteness and some in judgment while others have greater readiness in learning some peculiar art god 
by this variety commends his favor towards us lest any one should presume to arrogate to himself that which flows from his mere liberality for whence is it that one is more excellent than another but that in a common nature the grace of god is specially displayed in passing by many and thus proclaiming that it is under obligation to none we may add that each individual is brought under particular influences according to his calling many examples of this occur in the book of judges in which the spirit of the lord is said to have come upon those whom he called to govern his people judges six thirty four in short in every distinguished act there is a special inspiration thus it is said of saul that there went with him a band of men whose hearts the lord had touched first samuel ten twenty six and when his inauguration to the kingdom is foretold samuel thus addressed him the spirit of the lord will come upon thee and thou shalt prophesy with them and shall be turned into another man first samuel ten six this extends to the whole course of government as it is afterwards said of david the spirit of the lord came upon david from that day forward first samuel sixteen thirteen the same thing is elsewhere said with reference to particular movements nay even in homer men are said to excel in genius not only according as jupiter has distributed to each but according as he leads them day by day philaukia kai philon makia and certainly experience shows when those who were most skilful in genius stand stupefied that the minds of men are entirely under the control of god who rules them every moment hence it is said that he poureth contempt upon princes and causeth them to wander in the wilderness where there is no way psalm one o seven forty still in this diversity we can trace some remains of the divine image distinguishing the whole human race from other creatures eighteen we must now explain what the power of human reason is in regard to the kingdom of god and spiritual discernments which consist chiefly of three things the knowledge of god the knowledge of his paternal favor towards us which constitutes our salvation and the method of regulating of our conduct in accordance with the divine law with regard to the former two but more properly the second men otherwise the most ingenious were blinder than moles i deny not indeed that in the writing of philosophers we meet occasionally with shrewd and opposite remarks on the nature of god though they invariably savor somewhat of giddy imagination as observed above the lord has bestowed on them some slight perception of his godhead that they might not plead ignorance as an excuse for their impiety and has at times instigated them to deliver some truths the confession of which should be their own condemnation still though seeing that they saw not their discernment was not such as to direct them to the truth far less to enable them to attain it but resembled that of the bewildered traveller who sees the flash of lightning glance far and wide for a moment and then vanish into the darkness of the night before he can advance a single step so far is such assistance from enabling him to find the right path besides how many monstrous falsehoods intermingle with those minute particles of truth scattered up and down in their writings as if by chance in short not one of them even made the least approach to that assurance of the divine favor without which the mind of man must ever remain a mere chaos of confusion 
to the great truths, what God is in himself and what he is in relation to us, human reason makes not the least approach. End of section 4. Recording by Lyle Wilson, Haymarket, Virginia, November 2009.